Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. I've done a bit of shadowing in the past and I've always been like, you know, what do you do with this opportunity, shadowing or if you're being mentor, you know, what do you do when you're working with a director and, you know, really the information's not out there. No, and even like we, we met shadowing, right? We were both on House of the Dragon, um, Warner Brothers mentorship scheme. I remember being there on the first day and it was all a bit tricky and scary. So um, I think with this episode, we're going to base it around shadowing and try and get the information out there of what the fuck you do. And I've had several directors ask me like about House of the Dragon. I've had people take me out to dinner asking what's going on. I've had people do Zooms with me. What we thought, rather than just kind of me and you going back and forth, people are a bit bored of that, we thought we'd bring someone on. So we brought on our, our friend, Riffy Ahmed. Hiya. So Riffy's a good friend. Um, so Riffy uh, started off as a visual artist. She's been featured on Director's Notes and Dazed. She had a name in lights up in Piccadilly Circus. That's a big deal. Very fancy. Um, mm. Her work has been featured in the Saatchi and Saatchi Gallery and most recently and uh, more relevant to the episode which we're doing now, she shadowed on The Top Boy. The Top Boy? Top Boy, <laughs> yeah. Top Boy. <laughs> <laughs> That's how my parents would, would kind of pronounce it. To be fair, it. my father the same. Have you seen The he Top Boy? The Top Boy, he said the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never said that before in my life. I don't know why I choose to do this now. Um, but yeah, you shadowed on Top Boy, which is cool. So we thought between us, between... House of Dragon and Top Boy, that covers like hype, like TV, right? Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I, I think also what you guys are doing is really great because like you said, like we're, we're all writer directors, but that process of what it is to get onto those bigger shows isn't always clear. We always hear the success stories, but not the pathway. Um, so yeah, happy to be here because I also want to hear what you guys went through. <laughs> and both Marcus and I at separate times have applied to the top boy shadowing scheme you know and and that was one of the very few opportunities that were there for someone to get sort of like unprecedented you know next to the director seat um and it was really really um well known in the industry and and they had a really good aftercare as well talk us through where you began how you started um why why did you want to become a director so my journey as a director well, as a filmmaker in general, was really unorthodox, I'll be frank, because I, I started as an artist. So I was very much, when I, my view, portal into the art world was painting and photography. And, um, you know, I always loved moving image, but at that point, I didn't really understand, like, how I could get into it. Because for me, when I watched films when I was a kid, I was just always like, oh, it's big people who get to do that. <laughs> like, how do I get to do that? So when I got to art school... Um, interestingly a tutor said to me my paintings were really bad <laughs> were really bad and they were like it's not your calling like I could see skill but it's not your calling but then they were like your f photos however they look like film stills like that's a moment what's happening there so I got an assignment to make a film basically they were like make a three to five minute film it can be whatever you want and my dad at the time had got given a camcorder as a gift and then he gave it to me and said, OK, well, maybe you could do something with it. And that's how it really began, because I then was like, OK, I can 
this is how you start, right? Um, so I started making films off my own back. And I remember at the time I did this film, which was based on a Simon Armitage poem, and it was quite like mysterious. And I used my sister as an actress. And then when I brought it to school, they were like, it's actually really good. And I was like, really? Because it was shot chronologically as well, because at that point I didn't know how to edit. So I shot it scene by scene, <laughs> like going, it has to be oh, in wow. order. Um, so you edit it in camera basically. <laughs> and um, But that that instinct, what it did straight away was like, oh, okay, I, it's not as scary as I thought it was. Like I could make this myself. And so my journey initially in the moving image was very experimental. So like I was I was playing with like single screen format, multiple screen format, just really pushing it. Like, how can I push this medium? Mm. Um, and then, you know, when I got to art school, they were like, you're a filmmaker. Like, this is really weird. Like, you don't even know it yet. And I, because at that point, my thought is, does films make money? Like, at least if I made a painting, I could sell it if I have a photograph. So I was thinking quite logically at the time. And then, but I'm so glad that Tutor did do that because it it took someone to kind of just affirm that you had that skill. You know what I mean? Like, sometimes you can't see it. Like, you're trying things. Um, and it, it kicked off like a hunger in me where I was like, okay, I, I know I can do this and I need to, like, keep trying. So I was... In a way, um, I then went on to like run for this small production company called Davies Inc, which was doing like music videos and documentaries. And then they kind of then helped me to start like taking on smaller projects, start experimenting. Um, and in a way, I was more a producer before I fully went into directing because I, I, I realized, oh, OK, I could shoot a film. But what is it to work in a team? And what is it to work with collaborators? I didn't know what a DOP was. Like, I remember one time someone said it to me and I was like, what the hell's a DOP? And they burst out laughing. <laughs> and they were like, it's like a cinematographer. And I was like, well, hold on. But, and they're like, director of photography. Da, 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 da. So, you know, these like n labels, they weren't clear to me. Yeah, all these acronyms and... Totally, totally. And like, um, my first big gig I got was this music video where um, it was for this TV show called Debutons. And it was with Channel 4 where they gave me 10K to make a music video. And that was the first time I worked with a big crew. And I was terrified because now I was like, what's an AD? What's the second AD? How, why, how, why is there three ADs? I don't understand. Um, and then from there, I think what I've done is I've, I took the journey of like building experience. Um, I made this art film in 2017 where my mentor at the time was um, Pinky Gondell, who's Steve McQueen's art film producer. And she basically said to me, Riffy, have you ever thought about applying to NFTS? And in my mind, I was like, would they upset me? Because I'm too out there. I'm too arty for them. And she was like, I kind of think they'll accept you even more for it because you're very interesting in how you work with film. So give it a go. Um, and I think, so when I got accepted of that, that was like the turning point where I was like, I knew I had an instinct that I wanted to go into long form. But at that point, I didn't know how I was going to get there. So went through that and here today. So um, it, it wasn't a linear journey by any instance <laughs> at all. It never is though, right? It never is. What I find really interesting there, Rufi, is mm. right at the start, you were given that kind of encouragement and that pushing from home, from your dad, who gave you that camcorder. And I think that those, you know, those sort of like family foundations of encouragement are crucial 
you know, because it's a long journey, Absolutely. you know, it's a long journey to find, you know, who you are as an artist and then as a visual artist and, and then as a storyteller in linearity like you're going to talk about. You're totally right because, you know, I'm, I am, you know, like my parents, for example, they always said to me, like, you should have been a lawyer. So you chose the hard way <laughs> being being a creative. But at the same time, I have to say, like, they were as much as they didn't always understand what I wanted to do, they never stopped me. And if anything, were so encouraging. So like you said, like giving me that camera, that was so instrumental because at that point I didn't have that access. And so um, even my brother, he bought me my first uh, little camera to get me into photography when I was 16. And so I'm so grateful to them because they did give me tools to help me. Um, And it's so much about you making something with it for yourself, right? Um, so I think a great deal in filmmaking is taking initiative. You know, you've got to have the drive to want to do something because it's not always a given. It it never really is. And in speaking on that, because we met a while back when I was on Talent Lab and you're actually speaking, um, <laughs> one of the speakers on the Talent Lab, which was cool. And I remember you had a really interesting story about how you got your work into the Saatchi <laughs> Gallery. So I was wondering if... Legally, you're allowed to share that with us because... I'm pretty sure I can. I think it speaks a lot to the hustling. <laughs> okay, so look, basically, this is what I mean by initiative. I, in a way, I found when I started, I didn't get a lot of opportunities. So my thinking was I have to create my own and I have to take the drive to create spaces. So as much as I was also um, making work... I loved collaborating with other artists and like looking at how you could use space to like curate and do exhibitions. So at the time, um, when I started out, I was um, I'd had a few shows happen individually, but then I met a collective of artists and we were working with the Noor Arts Festival, which was um, a kind of uh, it was a Middle Eastern art collective in uh, Chelsea and Kensington Council. And so um, I'd asked them, they, they, they asked me to pitch for their show. And um, basically, <laughs> there was words that I could, like, they were like, you could do it in one of our, like, smaller spaces. But I was like, under your, like, borough, Saatchi Gallery falls under it. So, like, could we do it at the Saatchi Gallery? And they were like, ooh, really bold. And I'm like, yeah, but why not? Like, it's under your council. So, like, all we can do is ask. So she was like... And this was at the time the head of that festival was like, okay, I'll do is I'll I'll contact them and see what happens. And I just wasn't hearing anything, right? Um, So I just thought one day where I was like, you know what, I'm going to have to bluff it, majorly bluff it. So what I did was... (laughs) What I did was is that at the time there was a Chanel exhibition going on and they were, like, setting up this, like, big installation and I knew that it was a work site. So if I went into the building and said I had a meeting then it's quite plausible, right? Because who's going to stop me? Stop it's, it's a work site. <laughs> so I basically turned up and I said I had a meeting with this curator. I didn't at all. and um, But I was so convincing. Well, I was like, I have a meeting with this curator and it's about the show that's happening. And they were like, okay, it's not in our diary. But he just happened to be in the corridor. And I was like, he's just over there. I'll go and talk to him myself. And they were like, okay, yeah, go, go for it. And so I went up to him and he was like, oh, hi, do do we have a meeting? And I was like, we do now. And I literally got this iPad out (laughs) and was like, look, I know that Susan's been in touch with you about this thing and I want to do this show. I want to do this pop-up show called Arab Bless because it was a project I was doing with a 
a French Algerian artist, which was about like, when you're a diasporic identity, are you um, more or lesser of an identity, basically, when you're in the middle? And so I kind of showed him the people that I had involved, what I needed. And look, Saatchi is a kind of space where they charge 18,000 a day to use their space. And I was like, I don't have that money, let alone the budget to make my show. Like, I literally got like, I don't know, five, six grand. But I basically want you to give me the space. <laughs> and then he was just like, you got balls. You've really got balls. Because I would have called security right now <laughs> to, to, to like escort you out. But then he saw the people I had on my list and they were credible artists. They were like actually really emerging. And... At the time, I was trying to bargain to get three days. I was like, I want three days. And he was like, impossible. I can give you a day, though. I can give you a day. If you want to do a pop-up show for a day, I could do that. And I was like, could you maybe do two days, a day and a half? And it was like a thing. And then it was like, okay, fine. Um, but, you know, I was also prepared to come out with, you know, the tail between my legs because I was like, this is an insane thing to be able to ask. Um but I remember when I called my collaborators after, they were like, how the hell did you swiggle that? Because even the people at the council at the time were like, wow. Like, they just said, Briffy, did you just turn up at the session? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Yeah, I did. And, um, but, you know, I had their support and blessing because um, he, he appreciated that I'd done the research also into the curation of his works. So I kind of mentioned that, look, I know you've got this show where you have this person and this is going to be like an ex experience, blah, 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 blah. And so he was a bit like, okay, this isn't a person who's just bluffed. It's, it's amazing and, and, it, and it shows really great persistence and perseverance, but it also shows great entrepreneurial spirit, which I think is yeah. something that you need uh, to get somewhere. You know, this is a, it's a, it's a trend in everybody that we've spoken to, it's a trend in ourselves. You have to be entrepreneurial to and find those opportunities and just capitalise on it where you can. Absolutely. I think everyone has one of those stories in the come up. Everyone has a story where they had to take a massive chance to actually go and do something interesting. I think in part of our industry as well, like in the arts itself, like if you don't ask, you don't get, you know, uh, it's better to ask actually than, than to assume it's, it's not a given because you never know. The reason which would stop you from applying for that sort of thing, which the council person kind of hint that is it's fear right it's like the Saatchi gallery like, yeah. oh. you went there you were prepared and the, what's the worst that could have happened you got a no and then you was in the exact same situation you was in before and then you can do your other targets and be at the level which everyone is saying that you should be at um so yeah that's super super cool super inspiring I guess to fast forwards you you made a short film and then got into the national film and television school which is yeah NFTS was uh, I'm sure we could all agree it was a uh, it was an amazing place but very intensive you graduated during covid which it was brutal it was brutal guys it was just such a weird time because you're like oh, okay i just made my film but what's gonna happen now so i'm I, to be honest i appreciated the first three months of it because i hadn't slept in two years but i think in general when you leave school it's a process in itself because, um, and I'm sure you found this, Marcus, like when you're in school, like it's it's so intensive and you have like this kind of, I guess, a bubble. There's a structure. And you have like um, deadlines. You have like, you have a very specific outcome of what you're trying to achieve. You have a routine, don't you? Totally. Um, so when you come out, it's, 
you have to go back to forming that for yourself. It feels like you're gone, you've gone backwards almost, right? Like you're having to go back into the hustle mentality you had, which got you in there in the first place. And and the thing is, if you have that hustle, that's great because then it's like, okay, I, can, I have to just refrain back. But if you don't, it, it's like you are adrift at sea. Completely rudderless. I remember when we were finishing House of the Dragon after 17 months, that was hard because we had a routine. We were up, we were, mm. you know, we, we had a structure and it was it was it was it was tough because then it's like right we're gonna have to roll our sleeves back up, and uh, start eating <laughs> eating beans again. Yeah, beans on toast. Not the fancy <laughs> cheesecakes. That's a luxury. A bit of cheese on there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gourmet meals. Yeah, no more free course lunches. Yeah. I'll tell you that. <laughs> your first big win was it? Would you say it was your first big win? Is that you? You got selected to do the Top Boy Mentorship Program. Yeah, I would say so. Or did you have other? Yeah, I mean, wins? well, I mean, I would say, like, it's definitely yeah, that would be my first big win, absolutely. And also, um, I had a BFI network funding for this other short that I've been working mm. on. Um, so like, it's been steps because initially, when I first graduated, I got to direct a pilot episode, but it was a Zoom table read, and honestly, it was the hardest thing because mm. it was like twelve actors that I'm directing through Zoom. Wow. But yeah, Top Boy was definitely the first big thing because that was like, oh, it's a known TV show. It's just one of those things where you're like, okay, this is a real like situation I'm going to be able to see. And that's what you want to be doing, right? Ultimately, like like upon sort of leaving and becoming uh, a self-employed writer-director and a director for hire, it shows like Top Boy, that's where you kind of want to be aiming for your first sort of gigs, right? Like that's like a best case scenario. Absolutely, absolutely. Because I guess, you know, it also, um, you know, I'd always heard about um, the Top Boy scheme because they've had it the last three years and um, those who have been on it, they've had pretty good trajectory after. But also I, I, what I was also excited about is that it's a very diverse cast and crew, almost 90%, um, which I was like, oh, that's going to be really cool to see uh, because they do get a lot of trainees and stuff like that. Um, I had Interestingly, I had another offer to be on another show um, but I chose not to do it because um, it was like a high end, like uh, ITV show. And it had a DOP from NFTS. So it was uh, Michael Filicamo who was shooting it. And so basically I had the interview for both of them on the same day. And then I found out on the same day I got both. <laughs> and I was like, so one of them was for the show called You and Me. And one was called, uh, obviously the other one was Top Boy completely different interviewing processes um and um both was offered but the reason i chose particularly top boys also is i was shadowing uh, miriam raja who's an amazing director and also she was a year above us at nfts and i we always got on really well and i being frank with you i really wanted to kind of see what it is for another woman of color in this industry because the other director I would have followed is a very experienced director in television, like 30, 30 years worth of experience. But my input would have been completely observational. Um, whereas I felt um, being able to work with Miriam was great because I could ask her very direct questions or just be like, hmm, so what's going on here? There might be some experiences which go on which you can directly relate to. And you're like, oh. And it might even be a venting situation, right, to each other. Even for her, she's like, look, Riffy, you know how to direct. It's not a situation that you may learn you're going to direct better, but what you will learn is how a director navigates this space. And I think that's not always clear. So when you're a director for hire on TV, it's a completely different battle to film. 
because in a way, if if you're not the showrunner or the writer or the producer, I th- I would say the director and, and DOP is the most dispensable people in the room. So so did you go into prep? Did you go into any prep or did you go straight into production? I had come into prep um, in the last three weeks. And so I got to see the rehearsals and I got to see uh, all the tech recies. So I got to go to all of the locations. And then also... Um, I guess because, you know, like, kind of see, you know, read all the scripts, get a sense of, like, um, how the schedule, you know, you lo- you're looking at the schedule and you're looking at the scripts and you're going, oh, okay, interesting. Like, it's obviously not chronological at all. I found the prep time really eye-opening. And how little you get. God, nothing. Like, nothing. <laughs> I was just like, wow. Like, it's actually really tight. Um and then obviously the shoot itself was 10 weeks back to back. So there was no break in between. I think so, uh, we generally had five day um, weeks or sometimes six days. When you did start production, what was that first day like for you? You've obviously done many shorts. So what what was that like, like seeing this whole machine up and running? When you were a mentee, I, I certainly felt like, I just felt like a lemon the first day. <laughs> Because I was like, a complete spare part. I don't want to get in the way of anybody. Like people are doing their jobs, Joe. So <laughs> I was just trying to be useful. Where basically I then thought, okay, a way I can start. Like obviously the directors that work, I'm not going to get in their way. If I have a question to ask, if they have a question to ask me, I'm just going to like keep at a distance. But what I did was is that I was always like reading, looking at the script, and then looking at the scene and like kind of making notes. Um, of just like. Oh, because like what I did find um, Miriam found useful sometimes is that if she made a note on her script, I I kept a copy if she needed to look at it, um, just so that she would just be like, oh hold on, because she had her own assistant. But sometimes I'd be like, I remember you said this, and she was like, okay, great, perfect. Um, but the first day I just felt like a lemon, and I know that the DOP mentee he felt the same. We were just like, we feel like the most useless people here, because and even when you're getting your lunch, you're like. I'm getting free lunch, but like, what? Like, should I be here? Do I deserve this? You know? <laughs> um, and I definitely found the first week killed me because that routine of like being up at a certain time, I was just like, oh my God, how am I going to survive nine weeks? Like, I'm going to die. Because it is relentless, you know? You get into it and you like, your body gets used to it in a way. So yeah, the first day, it, one of the things I felt straight away is it's familial, you know, the environment is not dissimilar to what I've known before, but it's a lot bigger because you now have X amount of ACs, you have X amount of um, crew. And what I did find impressive in their crew is just how diverse it was. Like the amount of trainees they have on their sets is incredible. I was like, wow. And I, I, being frank, I've never seen so many like people of colour in the camera team. I was like, this is amazing. Were they were they in the trainee positions or were was in like the HODs where there are people of colour or like throughout at various levels, or was it mainly trainees? Mainly trainees, which is, you know, that's a conversation in itself, right? <laughs> because I would say, yeah. I mean, not to go off on this as a conversation, but I think the industry is trying to catch up and what it does is it, they try to bring in as many trainees to kind of build people up and it's gonna take time. But what it does mean is that there's a bunch of people of colour getting everyone's teas and coffees. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you <laughs> which, is, but... which is weird. But it, it is what it is, right? Until like five, ten years down the line when everyone's risen up. But yeah. It is. The disparity is tricky because like um, 
Because, yeah, now I'm thinking about it. I'm like looking at all the departments, like the heads. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, yeah, okay, yeah, they were all white, basically. But um, We went on a recce to Cornwall, and this was when we were mad new, you know, before anything. And it was a tech recce with all the heads of departments to Cornwall. And as we were walking, <laughs> Marcus nudged me. And I think that, you know, a lot like my white conditioning because of where I'd grown up, I, I wasn't as on switched on as I was, as Marcus was. And he nudged me, he goes, have you noticed something? He goes, where are the only two people of colour here? Everyone else is white. Because it was a tech recce, so it was just right. the HODs. And not just that, it was like, there was, what, three women? One was set deck and then the other two were producers. Right. Um, yeah, everyone else just uh, was, was white men. The, the DP for Greg, episode two, three, and, and not a 10, he's Mexican. When Claire's DP came, he's also Mexican. How we frame this is that it's not, it's not a House of Dragon problem. It's not a Top Boy problem. It's, mm. it's not even an industry problem. This is literally a societal problem. Um, and I think these shows and, and companies that, that create the shows, I think they, they take it as personal attacks when you mention it, when it's not actually their issue. They're trying to do stuff to solve it. Mm. It just is what it is. Well, it's systemic, isn't it? And that's the thing. It's a systemic issue, which is like from an overall point. Because there's stages, I think. It's a bit like a trifle. You've got to look at it in terms of levels. It's not just like a black and white situation. On one hand, these games are like... There's there's a pro and con, isn't it? There are good opportunities by going into a scheme like that. However, it's still there's a gap where it's like, why isn't it still above? And... um, that's being more representative. So, like, in a way, the statistics of what is diverse is is not always level. Yeah, I, I would agree. It's, it's, it is very systemic in that sense. Yeah, but it's going to yeah. take time. Um, I think what is important to know about shadowing, I think, from our, from our point of view, because me and Oz, thankfully, were both on it together, so we were like our own mini department, whereas usually you're on your own. And as you were saying, like, you feel like 11 because you... you your job is to sit and observe, like largely. And everyone is so busy on a set and they're all within their own teams. So when everyone's busy, you're just kind of (laughs) there on your own, just watching everyone be busy. And even the director, who is kind of your only sort of part of your department-ish, but even then they're they're busy doing their own thing or thinking two or three steps ahead. So you're kind of just there watching it and waiting to ask a question. I certainly felt that the first day, but I, I did soon... My ally then became, you know, the DP mentee because we both knew, like, look, um, at some point in this production, we're going to start doing second unit. And so therefore, actually, observations we make together will be very helpful because um, we could then already start noticing they had certain traits of when they used a, a Zoom or when they used handheld or, oh, we're noticing a language. And I just took it on myself where I was like, look, I'm not expecting at that point that the director's going to be holding my hand. Absolutely not. What I would do, though, is get connected and start talking to other people in the crew because also hearing their journeys like um, is really useful because it's just like because they also are wired to that way of working and that machine. And it was just great to kind of hear, like, I I think some of the people I met on that set had already been in four other productions just before that. So this was just another job to, like, jump on. And I was like, wow, (laughs) how do you sustain yourself as a human being? (laughs) We, when we went on set, most of the crew, or, or, or a large chunk of them, had just come off the Batman and they'd all be talking about the Batman, the Batman. And we were like, oh shit, the Batman. Stop going on about the Batman. God. <laughs> but I think that, and then when it came out, we went on about it. Because we went to watch yeah. it together. Um, but 
you're so right. You know, both Marcus and I never didn't leave a stone unturned. We spoke to everybody. We did one-to-ones with all HODs. We spoke to everyone from the people who were right at the bottom to the people right at the top. And and, and if you want to really make it an education, you have to put the work in. You have to learn if that's what you want out of it. 100%. Because, like, you know, there's so much to be said. Like, um, you know, even just, like, meeting um, the COVID team, I got on really well with them because, like, if if they mm. didn't do the job that they do, this thing machine can't work, you know. And it's a lot of the people behind the scenes, um, like even the accountant. I remember we <laughs> went out for a drink because I was just like, I'm intrigued about like how this machine operates, even locations. I also found their stunt coordination team. They ended up helping me for my short because I asked them. I had a massive stunt I needed to pull off, and they were like, "Look, we'll come and help you." And that's the thing, you can actually tap into those connections for like future things you want to do as well. So there's definitely benefits to being in that environment because, um, but it's really your attitude of how you tackle it and you know how much you throw yourself in. I mean, you guys must have had massive crews though, because like it, yeah. it's a huge show. <laughs> Hundreds. Yeah, it's a monster. And what, what we would kind of do is, it's because obviously the director, is is busy a lot like we, we'd have good like chats with them when things are being set up they're kind of free and standing around for 15 20 minutes and you can either talk to them about life or talk to them about like specifics of what they're, they're doing um but yeah if you have a question about visual effects or if you have a question about like a stunt there's kind of no point asking a director about that just go and ask the stunt coordinator go and ask um the visual effects supervisor because that way you're going to get a, a really detailed answer like from their perspective and then you can ask them about what the director told them because a lot of the time the director is probably told them something offhand in a meeting amongst four or five other meetings and amongst a hundred other questions and they probably won't even remember what they told them <laughs> as long as it works right right so <laughs> it's it's better to just speak to the to the experts in their field and learn that way because you're going to learn way more um so it's not just about being in the director's ear the whole time exactly actually totally i would say more so you want to kind of know um the kind of people who help build and sustain that scale because uh, that's i think the sense i got because obviously look for the difference i would say between the shows we were on is like top boys much more real locations so like it's on location basically so we had about 60 of course like 10 to 12 weeks so it was a lot um bearing it's a lot of oh moving God, around. Yeah, a lot. And um, bearing in mind, you know, the year before, they had to do a lot of stuff through studios because of COVID. Um, whereas now, like, um, you're on location, which therefore means, I think, in a way, I notice how fast TV is. Because they're like, we need to get this, we move, we go to this. And I was just like, whoa, okay. It, like, it's a lot faster than I thought it would be. Um, and obviously the whole thing of shooting with two cameras... Um, I've had experience with that before, but it was interesting to see it in a way where, you know, it's that whole thing about coverage and making sure that the scene is covered the best way. Uh, but in your case, you guys are also dealing with like such level of like VFX. So like, and yeah. I guess like on location and then also like hyper real created ones, right? Yeah, it was every everything that had visual effects had to be storyboarded and there'd usually be, be like a previs and you'd shoot it with that it had to be signed off ahead of time by the showrunners and and uh on the day you're literally executing what you have and if you're changing that you're doing it in conjunction with the the vfx supervisors uh there's 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 not crazy amounts of wiggle mm. room right 
Um, uh, yeah. I think I think it's a good thing to say as well that anybody that is going to be going on shadowing, it's really, really important that you try and embed yourself in Definitely. prep if it's possible or at least try and get a handle of it. What Marcus and I did a lot was we made friends with the assistants and they were in our office and we shared the office with the directors and the first ADs and the DPs. So we, 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 we had good relations with them. So we would just speak to the director's assistants. You know, we wanted access mm-hmm. to Box, which is what they used. We got access to all the previs. We got access to, you know, all the concepts art and everything so that we could enrich our minds so that when we went on set, we knew we knew what would happen because we were on prep for about two months, right, Marcus? Like, with, with the overspill of, 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 of the other director starting. Yeah. We were there for, I think, the first month it was just kind of largely just prep. Um, and then we shot most of an episode and then there was a gap, a hiatus, um, but everyone was still prepping. Three of the directors, they did three episodes each. So that's like doing... F- a three-hour film, mm-hmm. what, 11 months? Which is insane when you think about it. Yeah. Did you have any sort of like COVID schedule changes? Because that was something that plagued our production where we had two units running in tandem, meaning there were two units that were identical in wow. crew size and equipment that was shooting at the same time. And so the, the the directors would flip between each crew and actors would as well. And because it was time jumps and period, it was a, it was a real struggle. But COVID really through spanners in the works a lot. Did that happen on yours, Riffy? Top boy? No, not so... Well, no, because in 20, 2022, that the guidelines were slightly different. So basically, we had to test um, right. three times a week. Uh, sometimes you would have a rotation of some crew, but not all. Some of the crew went on to that pretty much the second block. Not everybody, but most of them did. But during, I guess we were at that place with COVID now where everyone was just like, if it happens, it happens. But we will have like safety mm-hmm. measures where we can make sure we can get someone on set immediately. Um, but I guess for you guys, it was different because it was in 21, right? We still had like some measures in place where it was still pretty strict. I think when we first got on, there was it was insane. So it was like... Um... As soon as the actors go on, like everyone had to wear a mask anyway. But as soon as the actors came on set, you had to put on the goggles. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> what? Yes. So the actors could kind of like be free without anything on. Like the first days were like, if anyone takes the glasses off, you're gonna have to leave set. You cannot risk the cat. You cannot risk the cast because they've had to have so much sort of surgical care to get them onto set so they can actually act with each other. If a crew member takes their goggles off or whatever, they'll be out. And there was only a certain amount of people, right? You had to have like a, a badge, which would be like a green A badge, and that would allow you to be on the main set. Otherwise, you had to leave when the actors were, were there. Yeah, we, we would always swing ours like it was a platinum medallion because we were like, yeah, we're A. We can walk straight through. We don't need to stand out here. <laughs> green A, green A, everyone. <laughs> we had it where we could just be anywhere, wherever we wanted, but it was, yeah, the COVID thing wasn't as severe with us. And to be fair... We had, uh, I think the biggest scene we have is like where there's like almost 400 people in the scene and it was outdoors. So thankfully that was like, okay. Um, just different times. I feel like if we was a year earlier, maybe it would have had to go through the same measures. One of the key things for us when we're shadowing and when we're being mentees is to hear the decisions, what the decisions that are being made by the director. So how would you navigate that? Would you go close to the director to 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 hear what the sort of like the, the conversations with the cast? Because obviously the cans would be muted once they've shouted cut, so you can't hear. What would you do? 
uh, look, I always ask permission. And Miriam was like, no, whenever I'm in the room, you are more than welcome to come. Like, no problem. Um, so I very much like to be there in the rehearsals to watch, like, um, the decision of, like, talking to an actor, the scene. Um, and it was just because at that point, it was just really interesting to see the decision making of, you know, um, their relationships with actors. Also, you know, the often what would happen is, is, you know, if she would do a take and we're happy with it and the team's happy with it, great. But then you will have executives always around the corner. So it was really interesting to be able to see how a director's navigating, doing their notes trying to you know make the scene happen but also then be like okay if a note's been given from another department how do you then navigate that um so I I you know in a way initially when I started a lot of people thought I was really quiet and I was like I'm just being a listener I'm being a sponge I'm soaking the environment um I I have a lot I want to say but I'm really just trying to like observe the situation to because, you, know, you know, there were times where I would see a decision happening and I'd be like, interesting. And I'm pondering, like, that decision's really interesting. <laughs> you um, so, so, and, you know, I, I think one of the key things I noticed in TV is you really have to choose your battles. Um, and I think you have to really choose your battles as a director. And it's not to say you can't get the one you want, but you really do have to like kind of navigate what's the most important thing. Um, especially if there is importance placed on things by the showrunner or the writer. Um, and I definitely saw very intelligent decisions that Miriam was making. Um, whereby, you know, if some if, basically, you know, if, if someone hasn't agreed with something or if there's a, like a different point of view, she's very direct in how she describes it. But then if it's a thing that is from the actor, she will allow the space, a safe space for that actor to be able to speak about it. And and I was like, that's really clever because, you know, she could, you know, I, I think my I think my film director side would be like, if we want this, we've got to fight hard for it. Blah, 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 blah. But you have to think about that very differently in television because, you know, um, it's it's not... Uh, the agendas are different. And and I don't say that necessarily in a bad way. It's more a thing of, like, you just got to really know the thing you're fighting for is also serving the thing, the bigger vision. I guess that, that sort of, like, part of the intelligence decision-making around that comes down to how you articulate it to your stakeholders and it's definitely something that you can't necessarily be taught that I guess life is something that assists you with that I guess it down to relationships and you know I, I'm when I when I was a school teacher you know how would you get naughty kids to do stuff relationships you know and, and it's buying when you are shadowing you have to li try and listen to the decisions you have to listen to those conversations and see which ones which battles are worth sticking yeah, to your guns and which aren't absolutely because it's Sorry, you were no, no. I was, so, I was just going to echo it. Yeah, there's, there's like a lot of naughty kids on set. That's the difference between directing for TV and directing film. Is that I kind of noticed quite quickly that in in TV you're a midwife, right? You're using your skills mm. to execute someone else's story. You're not. It's not mm -hmm. your baby. So ultimately, you're kind of going to a situation where the actors know, especially on a series like Top Boy in season three, like the the actors at this point know their characters better than yeah. anyone so it's kind of having respect for that isn't it um rather than trying to steamroll it because you've got an idea of what you want a scene to play out like you have to be open to 
being absolutely organic. absolutely and i and i think like mirinda did a really great job of that she really did because like she was very very like sent like very in tune to their needs so like as much as she's got to deliver this thing she's also like no we need to take into account what's being said here because they've lived and breathed those characters for like the last five you know five years uh well across time what is good in this these kind of schemes is that it gives you the window to be able to look at that situation in real time because there were times where I certain, saw certain decisions where I was like interesting because I might have done it that way but I might have done it differently and it's not to say it was better or worse it was just a thing of going it's so interesting to see what do you do and especially if something happens where there's a big disagreement as a director how do you deal with that and um and I definitely saw situations where I was like, wow, that was really smart because it's, you know, sometimes to win the war, you've got to lose or like be specific about which battles you're going to really get involved in. And I, I love your analogy, the midwife, um, because, yeah, it is delivering it, right? <laughs> and it's... Yeah, you can't then sprint off with exactly. the baby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's such a good analogy, actually. Um, ha- yeah, I think, I think. Um, I mean, well, but I would have to say when it came to second unit, the experience was slightly different. So I was in a very interesting situation because I was working with a, with a DP who is cinema and he's exceptional. He's a really, really good uh, D- uh, DOP. Um, and I found initially when we were being asked to do like, OK, we need to do these scenes. I know in my head, I had to really second check myself, like in going in my head as a director, I'd be like, I need this, I need this, I need this. I then knew, I was like, okay, if I'm put in a situation where I might be told I'm not going to get something, my way of dealing with it was, but the show needs this. And like, we need this Mm. for this scene. So I really did my research to look at what was shot before to say what was going to be fitting with it. My nature at that point after observing so much was like, it's not about us. So we've got to be very much like, what do mm. they need? And what, what's going to serve that universe? So once we both tailored out, in a way, I guess we read the room and tailored our language to go, this is what is serving your story. We had like a really, in, like a really streamlined process um, of how it went because then it was like, you know, it wasn't... It, like I said, like if it was for my own film, I would have used completely different terminology. I need this for this because the story works for this. In in my position, I thought I'm I'm kind of have to see myself as a nerve ending of this director. They've made stuff here, and I have to like supplement some of the things they need. So when I whenever I spoke to Miriam, I'd be like, "What's the key thing you need?" Because there was a scene we had. She was like, "Have fun with it. Like I trust you. I think you're gonna do it well." But um, bear in mind language. So if you're going to use just key parameters. But again, you know, I'm still in my mind thinking, okay, I'm directing the scene, but I'm directing it within a show. What responsibilities were you given as a second unit director? What sort of tasks were you were you given? If you could just explain that and also give us a brief description of what second unit directing is for people who may not know. Uh, To be honest, like um, I didn't even fully know what extent it was. Until, you know, you actually, you have the impression of it. But second unit is often where, so this is where when the main unit is doing like the big scenes or sequences, they sometimes have like splinter teams where it's second unit, where they will then do like GVs or like pick up scenes that they've missed or any kind of like scenes that are happening that they can't do at the same time because of the schedule. The schedules are pretty solid and like tight. So they're not going to get time to be getting these outlibs. They're going to be like, we need to focus with the main actors. 
So we had like a separate team. Like we were given a call sheet where we have like a smaller splinter team. Um, and yeah, it was cool to have a call sheet where it's like top boy splinter team. I was director on it. I was like, yay, whoop to do. And, you know, and also, um, but, you know, and in that sense, it feels familiar. You're using the skills that you know as a director. It's just obviously different in the sense that, yeah, you have to be mindful about um, what kind of where it's going to be fitting into the story but we had to also look at the material before because like the angles does it make sense to the original scene kind of thing so yeah in a way you had to almost like i would say the the program kind of also it makes you a good listener observer as much as active in it i think it's important isn't it that you do like we we got access to the dailies and we would regularly like take a day off going on set and just stay in mm-hmm. the office and watch dailies um and what that was really involved. We didn't get to do second unit because there was no second unit. The splinter right. unit was stunt unit a couple of times. What we got asked to do was, um, we had to do stuff for marketing. So they had they had some pretty big launches for for the marketing. When they first dropped the video with um, Miguel Sapochnik and Ryan Condal, who were the showrunners with George R. Martin, um, they needed footage that looked like the cool. episodes. So, so they gave us they gave us like a, a really small crew. But because we'd been on it so long. It was fascinating, wasn't it, Marcus, in, in our own arc that it, we weren't even phased by it and we were shooting on the same... Yeah, shooting in the red cape and the frame room, just kind of... And they just yeah. said, can you make it look like that? And we just knew, even though we're not DP, we just knew yeah. from directorially how to make it look like that, what to use and what is it that made that? Because we'd, we'd watched the footage so much, it had become part of our our own language when we were there. Um and it is exciting when you get the call sheet. And you yeah, the absolutely. The it is cool. I, I bet. I mean, for that, amazingly. I mean, how was it? Did you find? Because also, you guys were on it for a lot longer. Like for me, I would, I kind of would account it for like four or five months. But whereas for you guys, it was what seventeen months, right? Yeah, it was just, it was pretty relentless. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we'd 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 follow like all of the big sequences. Like if there was something big going on, we'd be there for the entire thing on set. And there was a stretch where we was kind of for like six or seven weeks where we went to Portugal and Cornwall and and big sequences. We were just there every day. But otherwise, we would give ourselves, yeah, like office days to to kind of catch up and and to get a sense of where we're going. And I think it it took maybe three or four months to really like get your head around the entire Mm -hmm. production. And then it was just a case of like, cool, I know what everything means. And then you're just learning. And then literally, I think it was around sort of September, October, November time, whenever I was on set, I was like, um, I'd kind of, we'd always go in for the director's rehearsal in the mornings. So that's that's the key thing to be yeah. there for, is is to see how, because there's, there's obviously a scene in the page and then the actors come in and then that's when they're really having the conversations with the directors about how they should be delivering a certain moment. Should they be standing? Mm-hmm. Does it feel natural to be doing that? Can we do this? And that negotiation, that's the most important thing to see, I think. Um, but yeah, but beyond that, it was after after about six or seven months of just being there so much. It, if anything was happening, any issues were happening, like they were running over on shots, you'd kind of know how much time you have left and you'd be like, they've got this many shots left they can get in the day. If they try and do this or turn around, it's going to cost this much. And it, any issue that arose, you kind of knew the way out of them. Um, and that just comes from being there. Um, and that's, that's, that was the privilege of being there for so long and so much. Um, whereas if it was shorter, I'm not sure you'd just about get your head around the production, I think. And and also because we were there for that long, like, and we spoke to everybody yeah. at different levels, 
and we'd hear murmurings of something and then we'd get a different perspective on it. It ended up being that by the end of it, our experience was probably um, more, I guess, wider and vast than probably some of the above the line because we knew it from sort of like the assistance level right the way to the top of showrunners. So if an, is- if an issue happened, we'd forensically be able to like, like, like have conversations and be what able happened? to piece together actually this is what's happened and this yeah. is why th- this is yeah. this is why it's happened and this is what's what, what, what with the da- and, and Miguel you know uh, Miguel Sapochnik who was our mentor as well he was instrumental in ensuring that we were like you need to come into all these meetings mm. even the difficult ones I want you sat there and I want you to listen because you need to know this is what's going to happen to you That's amazing. so you need to know what's going on and some of those we were like ah oh, shit we shouldn't be in here this is just really yeah, it, it is awkward when you are in those meetings it's awkward <laughs> but yeah. But it's so important because because this is the thing. It's what the job is. It's the job. And it's like, it's so much about like, you've got to find the solution to it, right? Because I definitely found there were certain meetings where I went to where I was like, this is awkward, should I be here? But it's going to happen to us as well at some point. And that's the difference, isn't it? It's, it's the politics and the pressure. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I found as being the big thing on, especially on a show as big as House of the Dragon. It's like, it's getting a sense of that you get a little bit of that from being in the film school, but there's no, there's not millions riding on it and people's external careers and the visibility. Like, so it, there's a lot, there's a lot at stake. It feels like anyway, when you're in that bubble and when you're in it, it feels like there's a lot going on. I think you're right there because look, don't get me wrong. I think NFTS was a fantastic experience, but what it, you are getting um, an assimilation of an experience because at the end of the day, if something happens on your production or something you know difficult you are still going to get to make a film and so therefore you have a kind of coverage like a, there's a risk element where you still get to finish it now when you come out this is real money so like it it is a thing yep. of like um th- there's accountability of these kind of things and so therefore yep. i agree with you there's definitely i definitely felt the tv world is political and it's tricky because it's like if it goes in the way that like it's positive, great. <laughs> but if it doesn't, it can be very, very tricky. And um, and I get it. You know, obviously for from a production point of view. So I I did have a more um awareness of the fact that ultimately production are gonna think time budget. Can you do it? And if you can't, next one, right? And that is that is how hard they have to be at it. Um, Sometimes it's just about whether the scalability is fitting to the project. So those are the things that can sometimes be at conflict. One of the things that became very apparent was that TV, it's about how you use the whole studio system and the whole juggernaut of production to execute your imagination. There's a skill in that as a director. It's not something that you're taught at a film school about because film school is very much about you want to do reflective textual pieces, fine, do that, and, and you're allowed to do that. Whereas in TV land, mm. it's completely different. Did you find that as well, that actually this is not necessarily something that I can, I'm going to learn. I had to come to the shadowing to do it. And how has that informed your career and, and going forward? Definitely, 100%. I would say, um, like, look, that I, I give a lot of kudos to, to Ed of Sip, but that you don't, yeah, you don't get taught, you get taught to be a direct, like you, ha- you kind of exercise the craft of being a director. It's definitely a space you can use to really like, find your voice and develop and try things. But in terms of how your role in the industry and especially in television works, there's no insight into it at all. Um, and I think 
you know, because being frank with you, like, I remember I went to an interview where <laughs> I was asked, like, do you guys get taught TV? And I was like, I'm going to be frank, no. And I was like, what do you get, guys get taught? And jokingly, I just said, well, that directors are God, basically. And then they cracked up laughing. And then he was like, I like you, Rufi. We are God. And I was like, okay, no, I, I was just joking. But um, but, ba- <laughs> <laughs> but basically, <laughs> but basically <laughs> do you see what I mean? Like, at that point, like, there is, there's a kind of like... That's really funny. It's true, though. It's like it's a pyramid structure of like, we're the directors i literally just got out of a development meeting and then like they 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 read the script that i'm kind of making now and it's like my interpretation of this script is that marcus thinks he's god and i was like (laughs) and he's just fucking with this little person within this story i was like that's not it (laughs) despite how we've been taught there's an essence of it as a director where we're like we can do this and um and and yeah, but in, in in I have to say, like the chain in TV, the director's role isn't paramount unless it's your show, unless you've written it, unless you're the showrunner, your role is, you know, I just, I definitely felt the power dynamic shift. And it's not to say I was like, oh my God, I'm not important. It was just like, oh, I have to wear a different hat here. And um, so for example, like just even having experience of second unit was like, okay, that's important to have had that experience because now I can go, right, if I were to then go onto that set as a director, it, I wouldn't feel frightened by it. I'd feel like I understand mm. this turf and I have to be very aware of um, to fight for the vision I want, which is still fitting for that galaxy that you're in kind of thing. So, yeah, that I think that kind of um, understanding that there's certain gears that you have to use. And if you don't get in front of it, if you don't get in front of the machine and control the wheel, it's going to keep moving whether you're in front of it or not. And then it's not its not your imagination you've executed. Absolutely. That machine will keep going with or without you kind of thing, right? And, and it's also a thing of realising to not take it so personally. I think, um, yeah, it, it, it's a type of industry TV where you have to realise it's like it's not always about you. It's not about you. Yeah. It's really not about you. It is about this bigger vision and it's about whether you want to be working towards serving that vision. Now, if it's your show, of course, you're going to have a different um, attachment to it because you want to do it the best way you want to do it. Um, but I would say, yeah, TV almost is more, uh, it's so much more about the collaboration of it. Um, and... Yeah, power diet. Because I remember there was an interview I'd seen a, a while ago, which gave me a slight insight. It was just um when Game of Thrones was being shot, there was a director. I think it was Andrew Neil, who was one of the directors, um, who basically said, "As a director, I'm the lowest on the chain." <laughs> and I was like, "What? That can't be possible." <laughs> that was one of the first things I noticed when when I was on set. Was I remember being in Cornwall and um, and the showrunner. Obviously, Miguel was a showrunner anyway, but so so was obviously Ryan uh, Condor. Um, and yeah, just the showrunner being right next to the director and being like, I think this should be more like this. Like literally ask, telling the director to give directing notes and then it's up to the director to go and give the actors actual directing notes, like interpret what the showrunner has told them and to be able to give it to an actor in a workable note. And that's the skill of directing in TV is like you have to understand that process and understand your role in it you and sometimes you can be like i was thinking this and this but it's navigating that i mean you can get multiple takes right so it's like get what you think it is and then 
be malleable. Um, yeah. Yeah. And but also the, the there might be writers on set and they'll give notes to you in a different mm -hmm. way, and they might be on it from the first take. And it's ways of navigating that. And you, again, it's not about you. You're serving. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, you've got to like be the. Actually, I find TV you've got to be almost more adaptable, because um, or be like you've got to learn to distill in a way that okay, what does that mean? Like, uh, and okay, does it serve this? Because um, sometimes you may get a note and you don't agree with it. So I often found uh when I observed um a lot of the scenes on Top Boy, which I think Miriam did really well, was that she would get the thing she wanted, but she would also be like, okay, if you've said this, we'll get it. Um, so she was always like, um, yep. amenable to like those, those decisions. But sometimes if she really disagreed, she'd just be like, look, I think, I think it's been, it's been done. Um, so, it, but it is that middle ground where it's like, sometimes if a note comes, you're like, okay, well, cause I remember there was a scene I saw that was like, I saw six different versions of it. And I was like, wow, man, I can't keep up with this. Yeah. There's too many versions, but I understood also why they were in that situation. But it's the fact that the, the director took the initiative to give the coverage for the options because when you leave, you're not there throughout post. It's the lead directors perhaps and the showrunners. So you need to make sure that you, you've got enough for them for options so that they can... Because you don't know what the overarching story is going to be. Yeah. They do. Well, interestingly, so this, this season, the both directors get to be in post the whole time. Um, I think last time um, right. that was, I think some directors got to and some directors weren't meant to be there the whole time, but Miriam's been on this from like day one. And that's interesting because also seeing the edit process. So I was allowed to come into the edit as well. Um, and I found that fascinating because you will mm. see a cut and then you'll see like what the execs say, but then you'll get the notes from Netflix. They're completely different. And so it's really a question of like, what's the, what's the, what becomes the focal point? Um, because on one hand, of course, from a direct, my instinct as a director would be like, what's the most emotional, what's the most like, like the best for the scene in terms of the storytelling and the feeling for the characters, but for different, um, people in production, whether that's the executives or whether that's the platform, they'll have different asks or they'll have different requirements for that because in some ways it's the balance between exposition and what's emotional. People forget, you know, directing doesn't really finish just on production. We go from the beginning to the end. Um, in TV, it might differ. So you might find not all directors get to go into the edit. But if you do, you're signing off as soon as, like, finish, finish. <laughs> yeah, because on, on Friends, it was a case of, I think, because it, it's under the Directors Guild of America, they have a protected amount of time they have to edit as a minimum. Um I think they went a bit beyond that in terms of they they gifted that, um, but yeah, they would, there would be an editor's cut, there'd be a director's mm -hmm. cut, and then that's it. The next time they see it, unless they're brought in and it's been a good process and they're kind of still involved in it, they will. The first time they'll see it is when it's aired on TV. Wow, that's um, really interesting. And that was mad for us to see, like seeing the, seeing the director's cut, then seeing that what seeing how it was kind of dissected mm. and then built back up. Literally. It's not a House of the Dragon process. Um, when we was there, I think Claire Kilner was speaking to, to her, one of the directors, and she was saying, oh, I've got this TV show coming out like next week. It might have, I can't remember if it was the... Um, Mosquito Coast. Yeah. Um, and she was like, the first time I'm going to see it is when it goes out. Right. I was like, oh, okay, wow. interesting. And that's just wow. what, what it is. This It kind of speaks to being 
the midwife again yeah that's when we was in post it was we really understood why they got so much coverage of everything because ultimately like when the showrunner is going through it and they're like this doesn't quite work can we play the scene from this perspective instead if you don't have the option to do that you're not going to get called back and you're not going to get hired again by them and they think you're going to be doing a bad job <laughs> which is nuts but that's that's the game because you have to you, you have to lean into that thing that you know a film's made in three or, or anything is made in three places in, produ- in, 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 yeah. in when you write it when you shoot it and then and then in, in post so you have to give enough to make it in post because it might not be what you definitely, shot definitely definitely I mean like I've always like the like my my thinking process with, with film has always been like you you dream of the Michelangelo the the like uh, pre-production phase and then um, production is the marble that you generate and then you know uh, the edit is the chiseling into it and making it into what it should be Um, but and obviously look sometimes in film I definitely found uh, there is a nature sometimes to be very specific about your direction because you're like oh I want it to have this kind of tone I want it to be this and so therefore um, you know there there is the auteur instinct as well of going, I want to do it the way I want to do it. In TV, you've got you've got to be way more adaptable. You've got to be like, no, I need to get this, this and this and get the range to make sure um, at least you have the choice in the edit to be able to like where the, the focus goes. And obviously in you for you guys, you've got so many characters in the show. So of course, like um, just even like at the dinner table, the number of reactions and faces, um, that's a feat in itself because the analysis you have to make with so many characters is crazy. And then there's and then, and then there's, there's there's the political side of it actually when you're on set and shooting because different actors are different sort of like um, status, so you have to shoot people in a certain order as well, um, and and then reverse and, and and that is, you know that that that's all part of the thing. You're never going to be taught that. That's mm. only something you can learn on the job. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, Riffy, thanks for that. It's been really insightful, and just for the audience, like everything that we've been discussing about are all observations we've made while shadowing. So, you know, we've made it. We, we, you know, Mm. we went in with a plan, pretty much, of what we wanted, and then we went there and looked at it and saw and learnt. Um, And I did a little bit of continuing drama before uh, Christmas, just a small thing, and what I observed Mm -hmm. really helped me in that. You know. Otherwise, I would have, I would have, I'd have been in paralysis. I'd have been like, "Fuck, what am I doing? I've got to shoot this so quick." Mm. Um, and it does, it does help. TV land is different. TV land is completely different. So, Riffy, we got a couple of um, questions that we generally answer, right? This is just a general thing for our audience and for us as well. What is meant by voice? Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's a really. I, I always love this question because it's like I think a couple of years ago I would have been like, "What's my voice? They don't know what it is." Uh, but I think it means this voice like like your voice as a storyteller and like your voice in what you're trying to say, the tone of it. Um, and look, every every filmmaker has a voice, but it's really about knowing how to use your voice. Um, I know for a long time I was like, "Do I have the right to be a filmmaker?" I was really questioning that. Um, and now I'm like, absolutely do, you know, because, um, but it was a process to get that because sometimes, um, you know, you kind of have to look at it as like a singer would, (laughs) you know, how they use their voice to sing. Our medium is telling stories and, um, and it has taken practice and it's taken, um, interrogation. Um, so, you know, it's, 
yeah, when you're, I would say to anybody who's trying to be a filmmaker or wanting to get into it, um, voice is important in the sense of what are you trying to say? You know, what are you trying to say in your storytelling? What's, what are you passionate about? And, uh, and really want to focus on that people, when they see your films will be like, oh, that's so-and-so's voice. I can so see that. Um, uh, or they, they are voicing things that I feel connected to. Um, so it's quite dynamic. I would say as a term. Yeah, we're just keen because I remember like when you're starting out and when you hear like of all the funding opportunities and stuff, which people are looking for, it's like we're looking for a really distinct voice and you're sat there with like your, your two or three short films. You're like, what does this mean? <laughs> How do I find or achieve my voice? And it's it's a summation of just doing it a lot and seeing the common denominators, right? And essentially I, I see it as like taste meets um life experience because it is really ambiguous isn't it as a term especially when you see it when it's like applications where they're like we want to see a distinctive voice we want to see da 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 and um and i guess i guess i've taken that note now is to be able to go if i can't tell my story how the hell is anyone going to buy it and like so if i can't speak of what my story is no one else will get me like i can't expect an echo so so you have to kind of use that term to challenge you to say, what are you about? And I guess um, beyond that, uh, what's next for you? So I so at the moment, I'm in the middle of finishing a BFI network short. So I'm finishing that at the moment, which should be done hopefully next month. Um, but next thing I'm really focusing. So I've been writing, really. I'm just really focusing on my feature film. And um, I have a, a mini TV series idea that I'm working on. So biggest thing is to, to, I just really want to get to see that taking off this year or finding a home with it. And it's, and obviously you're not going to share it now, but it's such a cool idea. It, it's got a lot oh, of bless. heart, man. <laughs> um, yeah, because like they're, they're both very different genres as well. One is like, um, is much more, I guess, like uh, drama led. And the other one is more like surreal, dark comedy. Um, but both subjects that are, I feel like would connect with people. It's just, it's just that interrogation of like, um, it's finding the right, like home for it and collaborator for it. So having, I had, I feel like once I graduated, I had a really good run in production, which was really great because it kept the muscles flexed. Um, and now it's just about really focusing on the step for a personal long form project. Yeah. Um, that was a good chat. I did want to ask you guys, though, and you can include this or not. You don't have to. Um, what the pros and cons were for you guys, because there were some pros and cons on ours that I'm happy to share, but you can tell what you think. Okay. Twisting it back on us. Um, I think, <laughs> for me, I think the, the pros was just, like, getting a look behind the curtain and realising pretty much instantly I could do 70 80% of it already. Um, and so it gives you a lot of confidence really. Um, and yeah, kind of, I feel, I feel like I could direct that. I feel like I could direct the show. I mean, I won't get the opportunity to it, but <laughs> I feel like I could. And in terms of the cons, I think it was more just like a, um, it was more just like the time you had to invest into it. I would say in that, like it was so full on, I couldn't focus on my own projects and, um, where I am now, I probably would have been here a year ago, but I mean, that just is what it is. Um, can't do anything about that. It's, it's. Thankfully, I did it pretty much as the third year of film school. Like, I, I came on yeah. to House of the Dragon 
just before I even graduated. So it was I saw it as a third year rather than I'd gone out into the industry and then had to pop back because I wouldn't have been able to do 17 months having yeah. been out. Like I could, I would do a shorter shadowing opportunity, but yeah, that, that's what I would say personally. Um, I'm not sure about you, Oz. Um, I think the pros wise, again, it was the confidence thing um, was really good. And um, for me, I didn't obviously go to film school for as long as you two or do that course. I did the much, I did the much smaller course. And I think that for the first time in my life, actually being immersed in film and my, and the entire landscape of my brain just being focused on film conversations storytelling conversations that's been invaluable and that's kind of set me up for life in that sense and also just seeing that people behind the curtain at this top level they're not really different to you and I they just got more experience and that's all it is uh, so that, that that confidence was a pros and also meeting people I mean Max and I also did a 40 minute documentary mm. which was brilliant um, but the documentary we did was was really cool and you know to have you know some of the world's biggest directors and 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 you know best writers like flipping over themselves about the quality of our documentary was mm. fucking weird yeah yeah it's cool shit it, it was a great sort of like nod of validation but it was yeah weird. Kind of, it's surreal and both marcus and i are people who would not usually like collaborate with people on something like that because we're so like i can do it myself i can do it myself yeah. but but because there's a, a level of mm. respect between us um and love between us as well i think that that helped us be like yeah cool it's fine and we really worked together like that we couldn't have done that without each other then we used all that we've got similar backgrounds in terms of skills and we, we brought that together and did it and i guess like i was saying to you offline riffy i think part of this part of this podcast is, is continuing a bit of the bromance oh, between us. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's really easy yeah uh, um and the cons i think that um yeah it was a it, it was a long time and it was a long time away from family um and obviously coming back you know, like you were saying, Riffy, at the start, you were talking about like having that routine, mm. having that structure, you know, and we were at like the highest, you know, level of TV and then coming back home, which is brilliant because I'm back with family, but then, you know, get having to sort of like get those sort of like cogs going and like, now nah, yeah. you've got to get a routine, you know what I mean? No one's going to get you up. You're not going to go in. That is hard and, it, and, it, and, it, and you know, that's really something you have to get onto yourself. You have to get yeah. onto it. Yeah, I hear you yeah. on that one. How about you? So, yeah, like, I, I would second what you said, Marcus, is, like, I think sometimes, right, when you're first starting out, when you see these shows, you're thinking, oh, my God, what do I need to do to get there? Like, I don't know. When I got there, I think sometimes, mm. but I'm I'm pleased when that happens. It's like, you get there and you're like, this is actually very possible that I could do this. Like, it's very, it feels familiar. I don't feel I'd be at all phased by this. It's where it's so, I, I, I took that as a real positive where I was like, great I feel like I could do this really well you know it took some time to get into second unit like originally it was like something that was going to be the first week and that didn't happen till much later and I know that was frustrating initially but I also was like it's fine you know don't worry we're on this um you know there's a real incentive of also being paid to be and and to learn mm. I think it's a massive privilege because it's like if it was free, look, I would still do it if it was free, but there's a big, um, you know, you invest in it differently once you get paid for it because yeah. you're like, oh, okay, I'm being, you're investing in me as well to be here. And that felt really rewarding because, um, it's the, you know, they're considering the fact that as a talent, okay, if you wanted to get into this, then we should also give back in. So I thought that was really good. A week in the life it's a section we do because we think that there's a lot of wankery around directing 
um, <laughs> there's a lot of mystery and people kind of get a sense of what they think it is based on highlight reels on social media and we use this to demystify <laughs> on how slow it can feel in between the, the highlights so yeah I was, was wondering what you've been doing this week um, so yeah. this week because um, I'm also a secondary carer to my father so my father has Parkinson's disease so I as much as I do my career I also have to contribute to helping with him so this week being frank I, it was his 79th birthday so I took him out for a walk I got him some birthday cake um and just tried to get the family to celebrate a bit and then said to him just make sure you make 80 at least because <laughs> it's 79 now and he was like yay okay um so I did that and then I also I've been writing so I've been very much just been focusing on, on writing um my feature and just kind of really breaking down my episodic structure um, what did I do on Tuesday? I'm trying to think now. I exercised. So one of the things I'm trying to do at the moment is train three times a week because I just want to get healthier. And guys, you might find it funny, but I won um a VR headset last year. Mm. And I've been doing VR boxing classes. Oh great. And it's really fun. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> because amazing. you're like in a desert smashing crystals. And like <laughs> I think I think the gamification really helps me because Normally, I'm going to be frank, when I exercise, I'm looking at my watch going, oh, my God, how am I going to last 40 minutes? Whereas doing the headset, I do an hour easily because of the gamification. Mm, and I'm sweating well, like a mad yeah. person after. So um, I'm trying to do that three times a week. Um, I went to a screening on Wednesday um, and it was just to support like a fellow filmmaker's work. Um, and then what else did I do? Today is Friday, right? Yesterday, I met a friend. I met a fellow yeah. director from my year at NFTS because also one one of the things um I've been trying to do after leaving school is like just checking in, like how everyone's doing, um because yeah. it's you know look it yeah. being a director can be really lonely, um I definitely find that sometimes where I'm like, um you know it's not always like the feelings aren't always linear, <laughs> put it that way. I definitely have times where I'm just. How are you? Do you how do you stay like emotionally resilient? Like it's tough. It's tough. It's tough. And sometimes what um, I guess like so look this week I've had a positive week so far because I've kept proactive. But I've also I've also challenged myself where I'm doing is um I I often used to find I'd I'd put really unrealistic expectations of myself and make my checklist so massive in a day and then like half of it was getting done. So like now I'm making it a lot smaller because I'm doing is I can get those things actually done. Um, so I think the way to keep motivated is first of all, is just acknowledge how you're feeling. And I think I've got a lot better at that where like, if I'm not feeling great, then I I'm like, okay, I just need to do something like take a walk or do something else to kind of like, um, not avoid it, but just be like, I'm not in the right headspace to do anything today. So I'm not going to worry. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to watch something. Um, also, I'm going to be frank. I also watched um, The Traitors on Monday. The UK woman's it's sick. so good. <laughs> I was so shocked when I watched it. I was like, what? But the American yeah. one, they take yeah. it personally, yo. They take it personally. Okay, amazing. So me and my sister, after <laughs> celebrating my brother's, uh, my, um, sorry, my dad's birthday, uh, we watched four episodes back to back. <laughs> back to back and then she was like i've got to work tomorrow like do you want to do one more and i was like 
oh shit no like I can't like it's late and she's like it's one o'clock and I'm like I know and then I basically I woke up in the morning and then I was like okay I'll try and pace it out and then I ended up watching the rest of it by myself <laughs> it's the only way right because you need to know what happens next it, I mean it's, look it's every episode is a cliffhanger it totally is it totally is and like yeah. I I've really enjoyed it as a show so like it's not like a show I would make, but I appreciate like what they've done. Um, so yeah, it's been a week of like just doing my my general thing of like getting by. Um, also tax return, I'm submitting it this um tomorrow, and so that's been my week basically. What about you, Oz? What have you been doing? Last Friday, because I was in London, I went to watch Ennis Men. At, um, I know that um. We had a discussion offline about it, Marcus. We did, and it will stay offline. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the director was there. That was that was pretty cool uh, to go to that and see the filmmakers. I thought, I wonder if there's anyone here I know, and fucking, of course there was. So uh, that was cool. And then um, on Saturday, I watched two or three films back nice. to back. Um, I was at, I was at a, a mutual friend of ours and Marcus, and we went there. I went there, and then I came home on Sunday. And then Monday, Tuesday, I'm on this Screen Yorkshire talent hub at the moment, and um, our deadline is looming. So, we, I'd I'd done the series bible for it, and I'm I'm co-writing it with another writer. So we swapped, and he took over the series bible to do a pass on it, and I'm doing the final draft, which is the draft four, um, of it. Um, and we got some notes from our development exec on that as well, which was good. Um, and then I've just been having more conversations in prep for the short that I'm doing. Um. And yeah, this week has been a, a a bit of a tough week. I think that um, I'm gonna take your advice, Riffy, like not to make my checklist too long because it can become, it can become debilitating when you're like, "Fuck, mm. I haven't done all that." Yeah, I, it's just the thing of making it more attainable, um, because I I I think the thing I'm trying to strive for this year is like consistency, like just consistency, like keep doing something small, like like atomic. Actually, I've been reading this book. It's really good called Atomic Habits. Um, and what I found really interesting about it is that this guy basically is talking about how like, like an atom, you could have great power, but you have to like break it up to, to make it consistent because the bigger goal relies on the habit. And so if your habits change, um, and I'm being frank, I had a lot of habits that were not necessarily great, but I was like, how do I turn it around? So if you find you're doing really big checklists, like just maybe look at halving it and see if that's more attainable because, because you know, I think we're always told, like, oh, you could be more efficient and do everything. Um, but you've got to look at your capacity, I think. How's yours? Yeah, it's been all right. I've, um, I'm, uh, what am I doing? I'm doing stuff. Uh, a lot of, a lot of what I'm doing right now is, is... Your Disney thing's been yeah, announced. Congratulations yeah, congratulations once thank again. Thank you. So, I mean... Thank you. So I think when this goes out, I mean, it'll be a distant memory again. But um, but yeah, this week, what is, what's happened is that there was a big press release for um, for the Disney scheme, which I was selected as one of six filmmakers to do, which is really cool. Um, so that was cool. There was, there was like an articles on like Screen Daily and, and uh, Deadline, which was which is fancy. And so, yeah, my week has consisted of like of pre-production for that I had like a budget meeting catch up with my producer about that um I also watched Skinnamarink uh which is a, a super low budget indie horror um I what did I do um I've, I've pretty much just been interviewing HODs 
for for that short because some of them I don't have in place yet and otherwise like just things like development meetings around the script and also editing this podcast and doing that loveliness to get this thing this thing moving so um alongside that i've not been watching the most this week i literally watched skin and Marink, and that was about it and now we'll go to nugget of the week riffy you've already given us one which was that book yes yeah i i would really recommend it it's called atomic habits and i because because of my dyslexia i have um a audio audible version um which i found has been really good because i find um hearing it sometimes i do as i hear and read it and it just like goes into my head a lot quicker so that's a good one and then, um, well, I guess I got, like, two. Like, the other one is, like, I got the sleeve for my iPad, like, what is pencil, Apple Pencil? Um, because it makes me, like, write more ergonomically um, on my iPad. And so I found this feature on Notes where I can write on my iPad and it just types it up straight away. So what I found in my writing process, it's been really good because I'm not having to do double the work of like write write it Mm. and then type it um Mm. because i found with my my dyslexia like that's one of the things i'm really trying to combat this year is just like not be so fearful of like (laughs) grammar it's just like just do it let's see what happens um so that would be my nugget is uh if you have an ipad get one of these pens and um and also you can get these like uh paper screens where it's like a kind of like a filter where you put on top of the screen and then when you write on it um, it feels like paper, basically. Amazing. So therefore, your handwriting's a lot more clear. Yeah. It's not like the digital writing. Mm. Um, and and yeah, I just found that's been pretty good at because I find sometimes when I have an epiphany, I write it down. And so what's really great now is I write it and it's already typed up, <laughs> and I'm like, great efficiency. It's these little small percentages that add up, though, right? And how about yours? The the one. Uh, nugget of the week I've got is a YouTube channel called Great mm-hmm. Art Explained, and it's really really good because it it's uh, I've got I'm still slowly getting into um, looking at paintings and stuff, but actually understanding them and not other just looking at it and getting inspiration, actually trying to understand what the meaning behind that was. And Great Art Explained as a YouTube channel is fantastic. Um, they went through the famous painting of uh, Monk, um, which was screaming, and how. I didn't even realise he'd done different versions of it at different times and, and where he came from and how he kind of um, bulldozed into the scene. Like I can't remember actually where, where exactly he's from, but he when his work was taken to Paris, um, it was completely different to what the artists were doing there at the time and his was looked upon as being a lot darker hmm. uh, than what they were. And it's just it's just really, Very really good. It was, it, you know, just finding meaning behind some of the art. It's really, really good. And they're really sort of like well put together video essays about 20 minutes long. I guess for me, um, there was a show released this week which I am in love with in terms of I was in love with the game and I've been super excited for the show to come out. It's called The Last of Us. Yes. But mm. what was fun about that is that they there's a podcast which goes alongside okay. it uh, and it's released weekly with the creators, Craig Mason, um, Neil Druckmann, who created the game and is also show running on the show and Troy Baker who plays the lead character in the game but is also featuring in the show as someone else and they talk through that whole process and what's cool about that is that they talk about specifically around the 25 minute mark they talk about uh, how 
the studio notes shaped the first episodes because there's going to be nine episodes as opposed to 10 and they initially wrote 10 but it turned into nine episodes in the edit so that's really interesting to figure out why and though it kind of it kind of uh goes some way to explain the sort of stuff we were talking about in terms of the sort of notes pressure and how ultimately the studio wins and it's it's the studio in charge of it and how it's going to go out to the viewership and it's ultimately their money so even the showrunners have to compromise on their vision um not even compromise but it's collaborate right to to serve the audience ultimately and to serve the story um so that is was really really eye-opening because it's literally i think one of their biggest shows next to the house of the dragon um and you sent it to me and i've listened to that podcast and it is really really good and there's one that he did for chernobyl right which is equally as insightful as well. Send it to me. I want to hear it. It sounds good. Because I'm, 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 I'm really excited by this show because the game is freaking terrifying. I played it in 2020 with Pep. It's, the storytelling is absolutely sensational, which is why I was so nervous to see it. But from what I'm hearing... Because when I heard it was nine episodes, I was just like, that's such an odd number. Why would they do that? Like, I, I've even heard... It's like, go eight then if you're going to do that. Um, but... I guess if there's a logic behind it, that's really interesting. Yeah. So the first episode, it's an hour and 20 yeah. minutes long. And when you watch it, it kind of starts off in the past as a prologue thing and then it pops to the future. And so it's really interesting to get a sense of, of, of how that works. Um, especially when you watch the pod, when you listen to the podcast, you mm. then can see how they've cut the two together. Right. Um, and also, I mean, the director of the pilot also uh, had his credit removed and, I think kind of abandoned his uh, involvement in the show over creative differences. Wow. So, I mean, that's reading between the lines. That's interest. I didn't even know that. Wow. Uh, thank you so much, Riffy. Thank you for having me. Um, it's been super, super fun. And if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com. And we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing in the film industry at large. And we'll do our best to tell you. Yeah, because we want to shape this as a resource for you. So please do get, definitely get your questions in. And reach out to us on Instagram as well, which is the Direct Take Podcast. And where can the people find you, Riffy? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. It's, Riffy, it's at Riffy Powers. And you can also see my work on Riffy.com. Thank you so much. So I think that concludes it. Until next time, keep learning, keep failing and keep the faith. <laughs>